0: Our reading from Scripture this morning is from Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1 is on page 1,125. And I'm going to begin with verse 18. So the very last line there on that right-hand page, the heading, the subheading there, unbelief and its consequences. But Romans 1 and verse 18, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God, or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. Therefore God gave them over in the lust of their heart to impurity so that their bodies would be dishonored among them. For they exchanged the truth of God for a lie, and worshiped and served the creature rather than the Creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them over to degrading passions. For their women exchanged the natural function for that which is unnatural. And in the same way also the men abandoned the natural function of the woman and burned in their desire toward one another. Men with men committing indecent acts and receiving in their own persons the due penalty of their error. And just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved mind to do those things which are not proper, being filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful. And although they knew the ordinance, they know the ordinance of God, that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they not only do the same, but also give hearty approval to those who practice them. So far the reading of God's word. Before you put your Bible away, why don't you turn with me to Genesis chapter 1, as we continue our series in the book of Genesis. We come now to the very first verse of Genesis 1 and verse 1. And we will consider again just these first four words. In the beginning, God. In the beginning, God will be the text for the sermon this morning. Now congregation, you know that every person that lives on this earth has a certain way of understanding the world and of interpreting the things that happen in the world. They all have to kind of make sense of this world. They all have to kind of have a philosophy, right? The the expression that we use nowadays is a world view, right? A, a, A sort of philosophy that you use to understand and to interpret the events of this world. Children and young people, think about what happened on September 11. There were How many men were there again? I I forget, I think it was, was it nine or, there there were nine of these men, right, or however many there were, who got into airplanes, who spent years in preparation, learning how to fly an airplane, going through flight school, getting a job in these airlines where they could fly these airplanes, and then flying these airplanes into a building, sealing their destruction, knowing that they could not possibly survive. Such a, such a move what would have driven them to do such a thing what could possibly drive a person to spend those years in flight school finally to get a job and then to do what you know is going to seal your own destruction well we have to say it was ideas in their mind ideas in their mind that drove them to an act of such, what to us appears to be such incredible folly, not to mention barbarism. But they had a set of ideas in their minds that drove them to commit that act. And in the same way, congregation, we as God's people in this world have a set of ideas in our minds that drive us to act and to live the way we do when someone dies we immediately interpret that through our world view we understand it to be such and such a thing and another person with a different world view would interpret that very differently when we think of what a man is when we think of what a woman is when we think of what a child is when we think of marriage when we think of the relationship between parents and children, all these things, and a million more, are determined by these set of ideas, this philosophy that we have in our mind. And dear friends, it's not a matter of whether you have such a worldview, but what kind of worldview you have, because everyone has one. It is something that is shaped as you mature and as you grow. These set of ideas become solidified in your mind. They can change slightly over time, but by and large, you have a worldview. And as I said, the question is not if you have a worldview, but what your worldview is. What is that set of ideas in your mind that determines how you act and live in this world? Well, congregation, nothing in the Bible, I would submit to you, is so significant and so impactful, if I can use that word, on your worldview than these first four words of Scripture. In the beginning, God. I don't think anything, anything impacts you and, and molds your worldview more than those four words right there. Either your acceptance of them or, God forbid, your rejection of them is the most significant uh, thing in your own mind. And what we find here, dear friends, is we have God and we have in the beginning. And now I would like to preach to you uh, this morning on how the very existence of this God that we profess to believe in verse 1 is all bound up in those first three words, in the beginning. There's a very close relationship between the one and the other. In fact, God and the evidence for God's existence are right there in those first four words. Now, before I turn to those words, congregation, I want to go back to Romans chapter 1. And if you would return with me to Romans chapter 1, I want to make clear to you what I, what I hope to do this morning because maybe this sounds a little strange to you. Perhaps it's not something that you've... Uh, well, it's certainly something you've thought about. Everybody's thought about it. But sometimes people think differently about it. And I want to first give you the teaching of the Word of God on what I hope to do today. Now, what we find in the book of Romans, in Romans chapter 1, I mean, in Romans chapter 1, we find in verse 19. And remember that this chapter 1 of Romans is written specifically to Gentile, or it's written about Gentile People people who do not know God and people who have never had a copy of God's special revelation or God's written revelation. They've never had a copy of the Old Testament. They've never had a copy of the Scriptures. They've never read it. They've never seen it. Now to such people, Paul says, in verse 19, that which is known about God is evident or is obvious within them or to them. For God made it evident to them. Now, the teaching that we have there, congregation, is that, and this is the what on the outline there, that the existence of God is clear in God's general revelation. Now, I think you'll remember this from your catechism class, right? That God has given us a special revelation, right? Which is God's revelation in words, the Holy Scriptures, the canon of the Bible, is God's written special revelation that He gives to His people, but that there is also general revelation, and that God has made a revelation of himself in nature, both the created order that we see uh, about us and above us, but also what we see within us, in our own soul. And now Paul says that what is known about God, now notice you can't know everything about God, but there are some things that you can know about God, and God has made it evident even to people who have no copy of the Bible. And we continue in verse 20. For even for since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, so now these are the things that we can learn about God even without a Bible. His invisible attributes, his eternal power, and his divine nature, and then the how on the outline there, notice, have been clearly seen. Clearly seen. In other words, it's not something hidden. It's not something that after a great deal of philosophizing or several degrees earned at a university, you can discover this. No, this is something that a child can understand. That anybody without a Bible can look at the created order and come to this conclusion. There is a God. He is powerful. And he is the creator of the world. And the source of this knowledge, how is it then? Like what is the sort of what is the book they are reading? Well, being understood in verse 20 through the through what has been made. In other words, through God's creation. They are able to see and to conclude from looking at God's creation that there is a God and that he is immensely powerful. Now I always like what it says in the in the Belgic Confession In our Confession of Faith, the Belgic Confession has this beautiful expression where it says uh, that, uh, well, you can read in Article 2. Oh, yeah, here it is. So in Article 2 of the Belgic Confession, it says, We know God by two means. First, by the creation, preservation, and government of the universe. And then these, these beautiful words, which is before our eyes as a most elegant book. Now, that's a, that's a very interesting, quaint way of putting it, isn't it? That the created order before us is like a book. Now, it's not the Bible. You can't learn about the Trinity of the way of salvation by reading creation. But still, we can read creation. And we see on it the fingerprints of God. It's a most elegant book that everyone can read who has uh, the senses to see it. Now that is the teaching of Romans 1. And congregation, I know you're used to me bringing my applications at the end of the sermon, but I have to stop here and, 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 and insist on this point, which is my first point of application on why this is important. And what do I mean here by this? I mean, congregation, why is it important that we read this book of creation? Now I know, and everyone here is going to say this book is more important. That's why I don't stand in this pulpit and say, let's go outside and look at this tree, right? Or this this leaf, right? That's something that we don't do. This, this pulpit is to hear the word of God. No question about that. But for all that, congregation, our fathers in the in our confessions and the, the and throughout the ages of church history have recognized that there is a there, there is something to be written and seen in creation. And it is important that we see it. And in the first place, and here's the first reason then, because the Bible teaches it. And that's why I went through those verses in Romans. The Bible teaches us that there is a message to be read on the book of creation. Now if the Bible teaches us there, that there is that message there, that there is that most elegant book to be read, then it certainly behooves us to read it. I think that's that's quite clear, isn't it? And yet... You often find, and sometimes even in our own circles, you find people getting very reluctant, very hesitant, as if somehow it's irreverent to, to look at the book of creation and to find in it reasons for believing in the existence of a powerful God. Why we should just believe God. Or many people, out of respect for the scriptures, say that we should, we should just read the Bible. We should do nothing else. And they have a great respect for the Bible, and, I, and of course I respect that. And yet, having a respect for the Bible means having respect for God's book of creation because we are taught it here that there is such a book and that we should read it. And so it is not irreverent to to seek for reasons apart from the Bible for believing in God. That is part of what the Bible itself leads us to do. There are others who say that, well, we should just presuppose the whole Christian religion, that we should just presuppose the existence of God and we should just assume the truth of the scriptures and we should work from that. Now, of course, that's absolutely true for Christians, right? I very rarely spend time up in the, in the, in the pulpit here explaining to you why we believe this to be the word of God. I just assume that you understand that. But congregation, again, the word of God teaches us that there are these reasons to be had apart from his word. And therefore, I believe that it is our duty and our responsibility to seek out those reasons, to find them. And that leads me to my second reason. And that is because we have, look about you, children. We have young people. They are growing. They are maturing. They are coming into the use of their minds. And they are beginning to ask questions. In congregation, how utterly reprehensible it is when we teach our children that why we believe in Christianity because we believe it. And we have a faith commitment that rests on no further reasons or no other reasons than the Mohammedan religion or the Buddhist religion or complete secularism. Isn't that the message we want to hand on to our children? Now, I get a little bit worked up about this congregation because this was, now this gets personal for me, myself. In my own journey, in my own growing older in, in high school and in college, I began to ask these questions. And many times this was the response that I received. That we believe in Christianity, others don't, and we have no more reasons for our commitment, our faith commitment, than they do. Is that the teaching of the Word of God? Is that how we want to raise our children? So that when they go off to college, and when they meet with the professor, who of course has years of training in this, and he begins to uproot the faith that you planted, And pretty soon it goes out the window. You know how many young people lose their faith in college. Books have been written about this. It's it's a disaster. It is a crisis in the Christian church. How many of our children, young people and older ones, go off to colleges? Or even the ones that don't go to college. But just grow up in this world and they begin to ask natural questions that arise in their minds. And because we have not grasped this teaching of scripture that there are reasons for believing in God, even apart from the Bible itself. That would do our children a disastrous disservice. And since their faith has no reasons given for it, they fall away. And you could think about the parable of the, of the, uh, the seeds scattered on soil. Now, congregation, I'm not saying that this is the only reason The only reasons we should give our children for believing in God, there are others, certainly some that come from Scripture itself, but I'm saying we should not neglect God's book of creation. And we should not neglect to seek out reasons for believing in God that are in that book, as well as the reasons that are in this book. And the third reason I give you then on the outline is this is our common ground with unbelievers. This is our common ground with unbelievers. And when we evangelize people, when we meet colleagues at work, many times the wisest thing you can do is pull out your Bible. Have you understood this? Have you seen this? Have you read this verse? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. I mean, that's such a beautiful text, right? The Word of God has its own power to convict and convert people. But there are also those times When bringing out the word of God ends the discussion. Now what? Now where do we go? When the person that you're talking to won't listen to scripture or is offended by it or is turned off by it or won't hear it, now what do we do? Are there any other reasons that we can bring to argue and defend our belief in God other than what we find in the word of God? Now the book of Romans very clearly has taught us that there are. And so it behooves us then again as the people of God to seek out those reasons, to know what they are, so that even when we come into that regrettable situation where people refuse to listen to the word of God, that we can still come. That we can still bring the weapons that God gives us in his word to use to to unsettle even an unbeliever who won't accept the word God. Of God, oh how I wish I had been able to read some of these things in my college days! What agony, congregation, I myself experienced in college, being a devout Christian young man, and yet even wavering on whether there really was a God in heaven. And I really did, until I began to encounter some of these these uh, reasons. And began to realize what we opened our worship service with today. That the fool hath said in his heart, there is no God. Well, with that then, let me return then to Genesis 1 and verse 1, where we have this this expression, in the beginning. And I told you that one of the reasons that we have for believing in God is bound up in that expression, in the beginning. And so I bring you then my first principle. The first principle that we find in these four words. In congregation, this, this may be a bit uh, a bit more heavy going here, uh, but it doesn't need to be. And as I try to make these things clear to you, I hope that you'll, you'll hear these as reasons for believing in the existence of a God. That when we see in the beginning God that we can turn back to that expression in the beginning and see a reason there for believing in God, even that does not require us to open the Scriptures and to reason from the Scriptures. Now, and the principle is this, and I've given you that on the outline there, eternal, and that is that something must be eternal. Something must be eternal. And the assumption here, dear friends, which, again, I I think that this would be uh, accepted by every person, regardless of their belief or their non-belief in the Word of God, that if there ever was a time when there was nothing, then there would be nothing now. Now, again, just ponder that in your mind. Is Is that not an obvious statement that even a child can grasp, right? That if there ever was a time when there was nothing, and I mean completely nothing, no God, No universe, no atoms, no matter, nothing, nothing, nothing. No laws of physics, no scientific laws, nothing. If there ever was a time when there was completely nothing, then there would be nothing now. Again, something cannot come out of nothing. That is the most obvious principle of science, right? That things that begin have to be caused to begin. Now, my friends, again, I, I submit to you, how, how, do you, how would you answer? This was in my own mind when I first began to read these things. How do you, how do you respond to that? I, I don't know how you can possibly disagree with those principles. That if ever there was a time when there was nothing, there would be nothing now. But there is something now. I, that's fairly obvious. No. There is something now. And if there is something now, then something must be Eternal. Something must stretch back into the far ages of eternity past. And there are only two options. Either matter, either this universe itself is eternal, or there is some one personal being of massive power with the ability to bring things out of nothing that exists into the far ages of eternity past. Now, I know this might sound strange, congregation, but that very argument rescued me from a secular lifestyle. I should say God, using that argument, rescued me from it. Because I don't know any way to formulate a response or a, a how to get around that argument. That something must be from eternity. And certainly it is the greatest folly to believe that this universe existed from eternity. Even the scientists the scientists themselves tell us that. You know, I think you probably learned this in science class, right? Even the children learn this, right? That... The, the universe always existed. But then, uh, that was displaced by the Big Bang uh, theory, the Big Bang model, which put the scientific community into terrible quandary because the Big Bang model teaches us that this universe began to exist at a given point in time. And again, the scientists discovered, now, I'm not a scientist. I, I'm really out of my field now, I tell you, okay? But I'm, I'm telling you what I've read, that the, science, that, 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 the, that the universe, according to the astronomers, is expanding. And so they have posited, they have suggested, again, not on the basis of the word of God, that there, there must have been this mighty big bang. Well, whatever that may be true or false, it teaches us that the universe, back in whenever, began. And if the universe began, then it must have been caused to begin. Now, I put a book on the book table just this morning on atheism, It's a very large, thick book, but it's a very good book and a very readable book that contains some of the history of how hard the scientific community pushed back against this awful idea that the universe had a beginning. Because the the corollary is so obvious, right, that if the universe began, then something caused it to begin. And that through the scientific community, which is, of course, committed to atheism and secularism, right, uh, that uh, it threw them into a terrible quandary of how to explain this. And, of course, it's something that they've not yet recovered from. Because even even men long before science ever even took off, Thomas Aquinas and St. Augustine, taught things like this. That if the universe once began to exist, and, and do note, by the way, congregation, that it doesn't matter... Just for this argument, I'm saying, right? I'm not talking now from Scripture's perspective, but from the perspective of this argument, it doesn't matter whether the universe began five minutes ago or five trillion years ago. If at any point in that time, the universe had a beginning, it must have been caused to exist. And again, I think this is an argument that you can use with any secular-minded person who won't read the Word of God. And I don't know how you can possibly answer it. Now, some have said, and this is true, well, that doesn't prove the God of the Bible. That doesn't prove the God of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and, and, and the, the God whom we love and serve. That's certainly the case, isn't it? And yet it does prove that this universe is not all there is. In other words, this universe, if you, if you think of the universe as a box, right? There's something outside the box. It, 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 it explodes the naturalist or the materialist worldview that all there is is matter and energy, i, I don 't know how, and, and again, if you, uh, you can go online right, and you can find YouTube videos of, uh, of uh, apologists using this argument at the very highest realm of academia. The famous atheists of our day, Richard Dawkins and Christopher Hitchens, the late Christopher Hitchens and Sam Harris and others, uh, they are not able to respond to these arguments, and you can, you can read their responses. Um, they often will resort to ridicule and, 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 and but again. The, 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 the ship of atheism wrecks on this rock that this world cannot explain itself. Well, I, uh, I leave that uh, for now, and I move to the second principle. The second principle, and that is the idea of meaning. Because, dear friends, if it's, if it's not true that in the beginning God... and that in the beginning there's no personal intelligent being who brought this universe into existence for a purpose and who created man for a reason and for a purpose and for a future then there is no meaning in this world your existence is meaningless and has no more value than that of a mosquito on your arm and this is again part of that Reality that I think grips the secular mind as it begins to dawn on them. That we're just a a tiny rock spinning through the universe, spinning through the Milky Way galaxy in a solar system. And that any time, and again, I don't even understand half these things, but heat, death, right? That the sun will begin to cool or whatever and whatever, right? and, and, And until finally the whole thing will be over and it'll just be a cosmic accident and we have no more purpose in this world than anything else. And I gave you that quote from Bertrand Russell there, a great atheist, uh, leading atheist thinker. Uh, And by the way, he began this quote by saying, when I die, I shall rot. That's what he said. And he continues, no heroism, no intensity of thought and feeling can preserve an individual life beyond the grave. That all the labors of the ages, all the devotion, all the inspiration, all the noonday brightness of human genius are destined for extinction, in the vast death of the solar system, and that the whole temple of man's achievement must inevitably, inevitably be buried beneath the debris of a universe in ruins. With the collapse of a belief in, in the beginning, God, all meaning and value in this life falls away. I think it's hard for us, isn't it, to grasp what that really means. Because again, we have this set of ideas, just like it's impossible for us to grasp. Why would those hijackers take that plane and fly it into a building? What possible good did they hope to accomplish by doing that? In the same way, it's difficult for us, isn't it, to step into the shoes of a secular person and to think for a minute that should I walk out that door and no longer believe that there's a divine intelligence behind my life, guiding my life, and making it purposeful and meaningful... And to think of the darkness that would fall upon you if you really believe that as you live this life, you're just a biological machine, a chemical machine of great complexity that will finally grow older and you feel your body weakening. Down, 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 and then out. And that is the extent of the meaning and value of your life. No person, no person can really be led to believe that. It's so counterintuitive. And yet, congregation, this is the simple divide between a theistic worldview, and here I'm not even suggesting a Christian worldview. I'm simply saying a theistic worldview as opposed to a purely secular or atheistic worldview or agnostic worldview. It's a watershed. If you believe in God, you believe your life is meaningful, that you have purpose and value. If you don't, you believe your life is meaningless. And atheist scholars say this. I quoted you Bertrand Russell there. They say it. They believe it. Whether really in their heart of hearts they believe it, I don't know. Romans 1 would seem to indicate that they don't really believe it. But that is the simple truth of not believing in meaning or value. And I think you see that in our our society today, because if you look at both extremes, you look at the unborn child on the one side, and you look at the very elderly now, right, who have no mind left perhaps, and no physical ability to be, to make any contribution to society, what happens? Right, the sanctity of life is gone. And people can talk about terminating a pregnancy. Well, it's not terminating a pregnancy, it's dismembering a living child. And the elderly that are shuffled off into homes and, to, and into places of care with little concern for their quality of life. This is, this is a simple uh, byproduct of this worldview, of this set of ideas in their mind. That if there's no God, then there's no meaning and no value to the life of a person. And to people that can't stand up for themselves, that can't speak for themselves, they are terminated. You can't talk about quality of life, or values, honesty, love, commitment. Those have no meaning in a universe where there's no God behind it. Well, and then we come then to the, to the most Uh, to, to the lowest of the low, right? And the third principle here is responsibility. Responsibility. Because if there is no in the beginning God, then there's no morality left. People can't be held responsible for things that they do if there's no God who designed and called all these things into existence. And dear friends, well, just think about it. Do you, do, you, do you pull out your smartphone when it does something you don't like and discipline it? Does that make any sense at all to discipline your smartphone? To put it in time out or something? That makes no sense, right? Because a, a smartphone is not a thinking, sentient being. It's not, it doesn't have a will, it does not choose. There's no such thing that morality is not a category that applies to a smartphone. Now, I put in there stop beating Basil's car. Because, my friends, this is a real article that you can find online, if you just Google that title, by Richard Dawkins, the world-renowned atheist biologist. He wrote an article in which he really says, and you have to read it to believe it, he really says that putting people in prison is like Basil, and Basil was one of his friends. Basil was not, Basil was something else. But Basil was one of these people who would get mad at his car, and he would beat his car because it did something naughty. And so he would discipline it by beating it. And Richard Dawkins says that putting people in prison, bringing them before a judge, holding them responsible for their actions, is like beating Basil's car. And he's exactly right, if you assume an atheist worldview. Because then we are no different than a smartphone. We're just a biological machine that happened to be created out of protein chains and amino acids and all the rest as opposed to a smartphone which is fashioned out of plastic and aluminum or whatever and to discipline to hold a person responsible for something he's done is foolish if we just evolved into our current status and that we're just very complex machines then disciplining a person is like beating basil's car or giving your smartphone a spanking is that not clear People are not guilty. Guilt is not a category that applies to people if we are just biological machines. There's something faulty in their wiring. There's something faulty in their background, says Richard Dawkins. Don't put them in prison. Find out what the problem is. There's a loose wire somewhere. And again, he knows there's no wires, but what he's saying is there's there's some problem in the machinery. There's some problem in the way it was raised in their parental and their upbringing. There's some problem down there. You can't hold people responsible and punish them for their actions. Well, congregation, I think you see now where we've come. Principle one, principle two, principle three. Is that it's really the fool who has said in his heart, there is no God. And that when you say, in the beginning, what? And you don't believe that there's an in the beginning God? Then you are reduced to folly. And you sink lower and lower. You sink from denying, first of all, a cause for this whole universe, which every child can see must have, cannot account for itself. Second of all, you deny all meaning in life and purpose and value to yourself as a person. And third, you descend low to the point of denying all responsibility for human actions. In which case, congregation, why do we talk about the Holocaust? What was the Holocaust? How is the Holocaust any different than than uh, a herd or a pride of lions where the adult male lion who takes over a new pride kills off the young. And a hundred other things slapping a mosquito on your arm. This is the folly then that you descend into when you stop believing in God. And it gets, it gets, you know, it gets darker and darker. And congregation, as I come now to my second point of application, descent into darkness. This is where people come When they deny the existence of God. I think it was G.K. Chesterton who said that when people stop believing in God, uh, it's not that they don't believe in anything, it's that they'll now believe in it. They will believe in anything, they'll accept anything. They become the, the most fallacious, ridiculous things become possible. In the beginning, God. And this is also what we saw then in Romans 1, verse 21. Right, That when people fail to believe in God, when they fail to submit and acknowledge God as the creator of the universe, they descend into darkness. God gives them over. They did not honor God. They did not give thanks. Professing to be wise, they became fools, says Paul in verse 22. And they exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and of four-footed animals and crawling creatures God gives them over to the lust of their hearts, to impurity, and they, they fall into, Paul goes on to talk about the sins of homosexualism, homosexual uh, behavior, and congregation. Where are we today? Don't we see this descent into darkness in our own day? Transgenderism? Who would have, who would have conceived of such folly? You have to be so wise, quote-unquote wise, to agree to even admit of such folly? A Supreme Court justice who can't answer the question, what is a woman? Why do these things happen? Because we've surrendered the belief in an intelligent, divine creator responsible for all of existence. And congregation, I want to end the sermon by just briefly pointing out to you, and again by way of application, that as this descent into darkness takes place, that occasionally God gives even to secular people a glimpse of his existence, a, a premonition, as it were, that he's out there, a little hint. And what terror this brings into the minds of a secular person. You know, that's another thing. When I grew up, I used to think that scientists were just neutral people. You know, they had their test tubes out there. They were testing, and they were following the evidence where it leads. Congregation, how absurd that is. Scientists have a worldview like everybody else. And they work like crazy to defend that worldview. Is that a denial of science? Well, it certainly is. But that's what science is today. Science, too, is driven by secular, atheistic presuppositions. And they'll do all in their power to defend that and to protect that. But every now and again, there comes that that glimpse that God is out there. There's something out there. And along with that glimpse, along with that little hint, is this inescapable idea that if there's a being out there who brought all this into existence, then I am answerable to him. And that is a thought, congregation, that they cannot live with. Nobody can live with it unless you are reconciled to him. Again, that seems to be one of those things that is just wired into the human mind. That if there is a being out there, I'm answerable to him. And that's why I want to close the sermon by reading from Daniel 5, where this man, King Belshazzar, had such a glimpse given him of the existence. Now, this was a man who believed in many gods, but they were, of course, foolish, uh, trifling gods. But Belshazzar was sitting at a feast in the book of Daniel chapter 5, They're drinking and partying and having a good time. When suddenly, they see on the wall a man's hand. Mini, Mini teko ufarsin. And suddenly that man had a glimpse that there was something, something bigger, something beyond him. And what does the scripture tell us? His knees began to tremble. In verse 6 of Daniel 5, it says, Then the king's face grew pale, and his thoughts alarmed him, and his hip joints went slack, and his knees began knocking together. Because congregation, it was inescapable for this king, with all his riches, with all his wealth, and with all his power, there was something beyond him, and he saw it in the fingers, writing on the wall." And this is what God gives even to atheist people. Little hints, little premonitions that he's out there. But they don't bow. In fact, we read in Romans 1, they suppress the truth. They push it down. Those little hints, those little arguments, those little nudges that God gives in his his common grace mercies, even to secular people, they hold it down. They don't want to hear it. But Belshazzar couldn't deny it. And congregation, think about those words. Mini, mini, tekel ufarsin. Weighed in the balance and found wanting. And that's what's in the heart and the mind of every atheist, secular person. They can't escape it. I'm weighed in the balance and I'm found wanting. There's something lacking. I can't stand before the God of heaven and earth, I can't stand before the Creator as I was born. And if I stand before him in my current condition, I am lost forever. Now again, how those thoughts percolate through the minds of a secular person, I don't know. I've never been in that mind before, thank God. But I find this chapter in Daniel 5 to be so telling. So telling that even on this side of eternity, even on this side of the final judgment, these people have a premonition, meaning there's a reckoning coming. There's a time when God's going to weigh me in the balance. In my current condition, I'm going to be found wanting. And that makes a person's knees knock together with fear. And congregation, as Christians this morning, how gloriously thankful we can be to God that he rescued us from that Despair, from that darkness, from that terror. And that's what God does when He saves His people. He gives them a new set of ideas, a worldview that enables them to live in this world in a way that is meaningful and intelligent and makes sense. Congregation, in the beginning, God. So significant. May God bind those words upon our heart. Let us pray. Lord, how thankful we are that even when we were so young, three, four, five years old, our parents put on our lips, in the beginning, God. And Lord, we pray earnestly for this dark, dark world in which we live. Oh God, we pray that when the handwriting comes upon the wall for secular, irreligious persons, that they would hear it. And that by your grace, they would not suppress it. They would not hold it down. But that they would bow before it. Where we read repeatedly of, of atheists and secular persons coming to faith in Christ, turning their backs on atheism. Lord, we long to see it more. We long to see men abandoning a philosophy that teaches them absurdity and folly. Women and men. Lord, we pray for our young women, our young men, as they begin to think about these things, as they begin to ponder these things, as they begin to ask why, as they begin to seek out reasons for the faith that they hold, the faith that they've been taught, Lord, I pray that you would help them to see the reasons of your word, but also the reasons that are outside of your word, that they would understand them both, and that it would be to them a a meaningful exercise that would protect them from the folly of atheism, agnosticism, and secularism. Lord, please remember us in your mercy. Bind these words upon our hearts. Give us thankful hearts, Lord, for what we may profess this morning. Lord, I do pray for my brother who will preach this evening. Will you give him all that he needs, Lord, in preaching and praying. And we pray, O God, that your word would go forth with power in this place and in every place to the glory of your great name. And these things we pray, Lord, and ask in Jesus' name. Amen.